Well, thank you, Christ Church. Let's spread the word about this opportunity. This is a great way to reach our community uh, with the good news and to, to supply some of the needs that they might have. Um, just want to encourage you to get involved. I love it. Um, twice a year, it's just a great amount of fun to get involved in the consignment sale. So, good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Tony. I'm your online campus pastor, and it's great to be with you in worship today. Now, if you knew you only had a few moments to live, what would your final words be? Now, whatever they are, they'd likely make an impression on those who heard them. You know, our words in general are vehicles to communicate our personality, our values, and our final words are especially poignant because they bridge the gap between this life and eternity. As we begin our new series, Famous Last Words, I wanted to share with you some of the famous last words of, well, some famous people over the course of history. The preacher and abolitionist Henry Ward Beecher's final last words were, now comes the mystery. Winston Churchill declared, I'm bored with it all, before slipping into a coma. In his final moments, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said to his wife, you are wonderful. Dominic Willard was a foot soldier during Prohibition who died by firing squad. They asked him if he had any final requests, his famous last words. Why, yes, a bulletproof vest. But the famous last words that had the biggest impression on me were spoken by this man. His name is John Stott. He's an Anglican priest and theologian who passed away in 2011. His famous last words to his assistant were, do the hard thing. What's the hardest thing in the world to do? Is it getting credentialed for your career? Is it starting a family? Is it saying goodbye to the ones that we love at the end of their lives? All of these things are difficult, but are they the hardest thing to do? You know, I think experience tells us that perhaps the most challenging thing to do in life is to forgive somebody who's hurt us. Even when the person who's hurt us is repentant, it's hard to do. If they're unrepentant, it's next to impossible to forgive. The good news is what's impossible for us is possible for the God who makes a way where there is no way. For the next six weeks of Lent, we're going to be looking, uh, we're going to be standing at the foot of the cross, and we're going to be hearing Jesus' final uh, words there on the cross. That we call them words can be confusing because Really what they are is they're independent sayings that are spread over the course of the six hours that Jesus was up there on the cross. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I, I look at these words and I realize that they are powerful, powerful words. Uh, as Jesus is atoning for sin for all time. And the first of these words is this, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And these words appear only in the Gospel of Luke and at the moment of crucifixion. Listen to this, Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's something we need to keep in mind here. When people were crucified in ancient times, when they were executed in this manner, uh, they would often, as those nails were going in to their their wrists into their ankles, they would often be cursing their executioners, cursing their mothers, and spitting at those standing around them. So I don't know about you, but when I stub my toe, I probably have a few choice words. I can only imagine the level of pain that these people were experiencing. 
Now, when they crucified Jesus, they were expecting him to cry out. That's what everybody did. But what came out of his mouth completely surprised them because instead of Jesus cursing the day of his birth and those around him, he prayed for them. And here's the thing that really made my hair stand on end. The imperfect tense of the verb translated, Jesus said, indicates he kept on saying, Father, forgive them, over and over again. The first question that comes to my mind as I listen to Jesus' last words are, who are them? Who is it that Jesus is interceding for on behalf to the Father? To understand this, we need to understand who, uh, how Jesus ended up on the cross. If we want to know who Jesus is calling the Father to forgive, we need to know all the players involved in the guilt they shared in putting the Lord of life to death that day 2,000 years ago. And the first them that Jesus prayed for is the crowd. They welcomed Jesus with open arms on Palm Sunday and howled for his blood by Good Friday. They were nameless individuals, anonymous, people like those we pass on the street every day. They weren't bad people. They simply were easily swayed, as many of us are, by the majority opinion, by those who claim to know more than they actually do. They gave into mob mentality and a type of groupthink, Some expressed hate for Jesus simply because others were doing it. Just like a few days earlier, uh, people were expressing praise for Jesus just because others were doing it. But they also participated in the misery that Jesus suffered. In addition to rejecting Jesus in favor of the revolutionary Barabbas, they uh, also ridiculed Jesus. Mark 15, 29, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. Can you imagine the pain of being nailed to a cross and to add insult to injury, having people screaming at you? You know, Jesus is often depicted being on a cross that's way high up in the air. The reality is that the crosses weren't that much higher than the people standing around uh, there in Golgotha. Jesus could almost look into each of their eyes. Uh, So he was elevated slightly higher than eye level. He not only heard the hate in their voices, but he he, he saw the hate in their eyes. Those whom he came to save not only misunderstood his message, but they were calling for him to abandon his mission by coming down from the cross. And yet he prayed, Father, forgive them. The second them Jesus prayed for are the Roman soldiers. Matthew gives a really vivid description of the misery Jesus experienced at their hands. Matthew 27, 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. Then they led him away to crucify him. Jesus prayed for the men who held him down and drove in the nails. He prayed for the men who forced him to walk to march the Via Dolorosa with the crossbeam on his shoulders. He prayed for the men who flogged him to within an inch of his life. And yes, he forgave the way in which they mocked and humiliated him before carrying out their orders to execute him. The soldiers were even guiltier than the crowd because they were the instruments by which Jesus was physically broken. 
And yet, he prayed for them too. Father, forgive them. The third then that Jesus prayed for was Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. You see, he was the one responsible for issuing the orders that the soldiers followed. Because of his word, Jesus was mocked, beaten, forced to march the Via Dolorosa, and crucified at Golgotha. But here's the thing. Pilate didn't have Jesus crucified because he hated Jesus. He didn't even think Jesus had committed a crime worthy of death. He ordered Jesus crucified because he was weak. Because as the crowds gathered at the foot of the Antonia Fortress, stirred up by the religious leaders, he gave in to their demands. Matthew 27, 24. Pilate saw that he was not getting anywhere. Instead, a riot was breaking out. So Pilate took some water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. He said, I won't be guilty of killing this man. Do what you want. Pilate washed his hands of responsibility. Just as the crowd took up voice and said, we'll take on responsibility for spilling Jesus' blood. Perhaps Pilate acted in a politically savvy manner in preventing a riot, but he traded a man's life to hold on to his power. And no matter how much washing he did, he was not washing off the blood of an innocent man. There was something to forgive. And yet, even though Pilate gave the order to execute him, Jesus prayed for him too, Father, forgive him. The fourth them Jesus prayed for was King Herod Antipas, the, the puppet king who ruled over Galilee and Perea in those times and was a loyal servant of Caesar and Rome. Pilate's first attempt at uh, avoiding responsibility for having Jesus' life in his hands was to send Jesus to Herod. And Herod was willing to receive him. We see in Luke 23, 8, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus, for he had heard a lot about him and had been hoping to see him perform a miracle. Now Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus, and putting a kingly robe on him, they sent him back to Pilate. When Jesus arrived, Herod expected Jesus to perform, to do something amazing and flashy. After all, this man had done incredible miracles among the common people, so surely he's gonna do something amazing for a king. And yet, when Jesus refused to perform, Herod and his soldiers mocked and ridiculed him. Like Pilate, Herod didn't believe Jesus had done anything worthy of being put to death. And like Pilate, Herod washed his hands of responsibility by sending Jesus back to the Roman governor. And yet, Father, forgive them. The fifth them Jesus prayed for was the religious leaders. Jesus was a curiosity to Herod early on. He wasn't even on Pilate's radar. The soldiers were neutral, and the crowds flocked around Jesus to hear his teaching and to see his miracles. But from the very beginning, Jesus faced fierce opposition from those who claimed to be servants of God. Throughout his ministry, the religious leaders conspired to discredit him and to take his life and their opportunity finally arrived. Matthew 26, three. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. These religious leaders claimed to speak for God and to uphold God's commands to Israel, and yet they didn't care to recognize that by hunting for a man's life, by searching for false evidence, they were opposing the ways of the God they claimed to serve. 
Their actions betrayed a desire to preserve their own relevance, their own power, and they served the idol of outward religion instead of the God who is the substance of true religion. Their ambition would not allow them to be open to the new thing that God was doing. If anyone bears the lion's share of guilt for what happened to Jesus, it would be them. Many hands were involved, but their influence directed the deed and made it possible. And yet, Father, forgive them. The sixth them that Jesus prayed for was the 12 disciples. These were Jesus' closest friends. They knew him. They lived with him. They did God's work with him. The sharpest blow comes not from our enemy, but from our friends, those that we're close to. Their guilt was certainly not the same as the religious leaders who were actively seeking to kill Jesus, but they all betrayed Jesus in his hour of need. Let's start with the most obvious betrayal, Luke 22, 3. Then Satan entered Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 apostles. Judas went to the chief priests and the temple guards and discussed with them how he could betray Jesus. They were pleased and agreed to give him some money. Judas gave up Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. That was how much the Lord of life was worth to this man who had become so enslaved to the idol of wealth. When Judas faced Jesus in the garden, he kissed Jesus. He turns a kiss into an act of betrayal. How tragic. And hard as it is to understand, I believe Jesus included Judas in his prayer. He was interceding for Judas even when Judas fell into despair when his idol of wealth failed him and when he considered dying by suicide. Then there's Peter who boldly claimed he would follow Jesus even to death. Matthew 26, 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. See, when things got tough, Peter's nerve failed him. Though he was confident he would be willing to die with Jesus, when the moment came, he found that he would rather live. He was afraid that there was a cross waiting for him if he affirmed his relationship with Christ. And after denying Jesus three times, the rooster crowed, just as Jesus predicted it would, and their eyes met from across the courtyard. And in that moment, Peter realized with a sinking heart that he had betrayed his master, his Lord, and his friends. And as bitter as this was, Jesus prayed for Peter too. Then there's the rest of the disciples. Listen to what Jesus told them in advance of going to Jerusalem. John 16, 32. The time is coming and is already here when all of you will be scattered. Each of you will go your own way and leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew their betrayal was coming. In fact, at the Last Supper when he said, one of you will betray me, all of them were thinking, is it me? Why? Because they knew that that they were capable of abandoning Jesus. They knew they were capable of betraying him. We're all capable of that. And sure enough, when things got tough, the disciples scattered and left Jesus all alone. Yet he prayed for them, his dearest friends, Father, forgive them. There's another player in this story we haven't talked about yet. They're not as easy to find in the pages of your Bible as some of the other players that we talked about this morning. 
but they have a timeless significance for us as we answer the question, who is it that Jesus was praying for? Can any of you guess who that might be? You see, long before any of us were born, Jesus was praying for each and every one of us that the Father would forgive us too. The seventh them that Jesus was praying for is you and me. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who, who prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ and foretold what he would do for all humanity, past, present, and future. Isaiah 53. We despised him and rejected him, a man of sorrows acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our grief he bore, our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and bruised for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was lashed and we were healed. We, every one of us, have strayed away like sheep. We who left God's path to follow our own. Yet God laid on him the guilt and sins of every one of us. Here's the amazing mystery of the gospel laid bare. The entire human race was there at the cross. The death of Jesus transcended time. I wasn't there, but I ridiculed him with the mob. I wasn't there, but I held him down and drove in the nails. I wasn't there, but I judged him as innocent, gave into the demands of the crowd, and washed my hands of the whole mess. I wasn't there, but I found him interesting, a curiosity, but not enough to follow him. I wasn't there, but I betrayed him for material gain like Judas. I wasn't there, but I denied him to save my own skin like Peter. I wasn't there, but I abandoned him in his hour of need when the going got tough. I wasn't there, but I know my sin weighed on his shoulders there on Calvary. I wasn't there, but I know he became sin for me. And just as surely as one thief on the cross repented and the other didn't, we all have a choice to make. Do you believe you're forgiven your sins? And will you receive the grace and forgiveness of God. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're wondering, why in the world would the Father forgive these people for what they did to Jesus? Why does the Father forgive us? And I'll tell you why. The reason is this, spiritual ignorance. Listen again to the first of Jesus' famous last words, Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Let's say this next part. They don't know what they're doing. Well, wait a minute. You may be thinking, what about Judas, the religious leaders, the mocking crowd, the cruel Roman soldiers? They certainly seemed to know what they were doing. They wanted Jesus dead or to make him suffer, and that's exactly what they got. And yet, Jesus is making a spiritual point. The religious leaders thought they were squashing a troublesome rival and a sect that had sprung up in Judaism. They had no idea that they were putting the Lord of life, the author of life itself, life itself, to death. That very source of salvation and redemption that every human heart longs to receive. You see, the basis of our forgiveness is our ignorance of the truth. 
None of us are in a place to judge because we can't know what's in another person's heart. I, I don't even know what's in my own heart. God alone can see into our hearts and know us. And if God who alone can see into our heart and has the, the uh, and, and can judge us for what he sees in our hearts decides instead to forgive us, then that has profound implications for how we as his servants, as his followers, as his image bearers live in this world. And that means as hard as it is, we're called as God's people to forgive others like Jesus. But we need need to understand why. So church family, why should we forgive like Jesus? The first reason is this. Spiritual ignorance leads to wrong action. Take the apostle Paul, for example. His claim to fame was forming a bunch of new church communities in the first century. And his letters to those communities make up about 25% of the New Testament. But before all that, he hunted down Christians and tried to put them to death. Like those religious leaders who sought to kill Jesus, Paul was trying to stamp out this religious sect that he thought had departed from God's ways. But then Paul encountered the risen Jesus, and the rest is history. Listen to what he says about this to his pupil Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.13 Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul understood that spiritual ignorance leads to wrong action. Everyone who had a hand in crucifying Jesus seemed to know what they were doing. The religious leaders even thought they were doing God's work. So did Paul, but Paul came to understand that in his zealousness to defend God, he was actually standing opposed to God in ignorance. If God doesn't hold it against him, we should be willing to forgive as well. After all, imagine what would have happened if Paul, had been, if Paul hadn't been forgiven, if he had been thrown out of the church. The mission of God would have suffered a great loss. Spiritual ignorance makes us blind to what's really going on behind the scenes, and that leads to the second reason that we should forgive like Jesus, and that's because Satan thrives on unforgiveness. Paul wrote a letter to a divided Corinthian church. This is what he had to say about forgiveness. When you forgive anyone, I do too, and whatever I have forgiven to the extent that this affected me too has been by Christ's authority and for your good. A further reason for forgiveness is to keep from being outsmarted by Satan, for we know what he is trying to do. This week I read a a story about a pastor in India who one day an angry man came into his office, and this man was accusing him of all sorts of things that were untrue. Well, many of us probably would have responded by reacting and telling him to get out of the office. But this man, what he does, this pastor, he goes into the bathroom, he takes a basin, fills it with water, and he comes back out and he says to the man, I know what you're accusing me of is untrue, but I acknowledge your anger. And I feel the right thing to do is to ask for your forgiveness. And then he offered to wash the man's feet. Well, that broke something in this man's heart and he, his eyes filled with tears and he gave himself to the Lord. What is Satan trying to do? Divide, conquer, and destroy. 
You see, the stakes are much higher than we might have expected. We're commanded to forgive because it keeps us from being outsmarted by Satan. Had this pastor acted in a proud manner and told this man to get out of his office, Satan would have gained ground that day. As it was because the pastor humbled himself and, and asked for forgiveness for something he didn't even do, Satan lost ground because Satan only thrives on unforgiveness. Related to this, the third reason that we should forgive like Jesus is we share a message larger than ourselves. Have you ever heard the expression, chancing one's arm? Well, it initially came about in the year 1492, way back, uh, when two prominent Irish families were fighting bitterly. The Kildares besieged the Ormonds, and the Ormonds took refuge in the uh, chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now, during the siege, the Earl of Kildare had a change of heart. All of this was foolish. After all, these families worshipped the same God, they worshipped at the same church, and they were living in the same country, and yet they were trying to kill each other. The Earl of Kildare then called out to the Earl of Ormonds, but the Ormonds didn't respond because they feared that perhaps it was a trick, it was a trap. So the Earl of Kildare took his spear, he carved a hole in the door of the chapter house and thrust his arm through the hole. After a tense moment, another hand grasped his own, the door was unbolted, both men came out and they embraced and the feud was over. Are you willing to chance your arm for the sake of the gospel? Listen to the words that Paul wrote just a few verses later in his letter to the Corinthians. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. We're to be about modeling what that looks like. We're to be about repenting and modeling reconciliation. But so often we're tempted to condemn like the Pharisees. Yes, we've been hurt. Yes, the person who hurt us doesn't deserve forgiveness. But none of us deserve forgiveness, right? We don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get grace. And that grace changes us as surely as the Apostle Paul was changed that day on the road to Damascus. And that changes the fourth reason why we should forgive like Jesus, because humility and healing are linked. Listen to one of God's most amazing promises in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Then if my people will humble themselves and pray and search for me and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Forgiving others is a humbling act that leads to healing. We forgive the inexcusable in others because God has already forgiven the inexcusable in us. Now, don't get me wrong, this is a process that we need to live out. We're encouraged to pray, search for God, turn from our wicked ways. It certainly isn't automatic. But it's worth humbling ourselves because there's healing from every hurt when we turn from our sense of entitlement to withhold forgiveness toward releasing that hurt, releasing the person who's hurt us and ourselves into the hand of a God who heals. 
And that healing has far-reaching effects, not just for you, not just for the person who hurt you, but for the entire community. Because those who receive are expected to give. And that's the fifth reason we should forgive like Jesus. Why are we expected to give? Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 3.12. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. There it is right there. The Lord forgave you, therefore forgive others. And that gets to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that you are forgiven to forgive like Jesus. You're forgiven to forgive like Jesus. To those who have been given much, much will be expected of us. And make no mistake, we've been given the greatest gift we could ever ask for in this life. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and praying on our behalf, Father, forgive them. As we wrap up, I wanted to share a story with you that deeply touched me this week. Many of you know about uh, Corey Ten Boom. Corey and her family were uh, watchmakers during uh, World War II. They housed many of the Jews in their basement, hid them from the Nazis. But they were eventually found out and everybody was sent uh, to the concentration camps. Corey and her sister Betsy stayed together and they uh, led many people to Christ there in the concentration camps. Betsy was put to death, sadly, and Corey was released about 12 days later due to what was probably a clerical error. Years later, Corey was speaking at a Munich church, and at the close of a service, a balding man in a large overcoat came up to her, and he was holding out his hand. Corey froze because she recognized that this man was one of the former concentration camp guards. In fact, she remembered him well and how cruel he had been to her and the other women that were there at the camp. And in that moment, he was holding out his hand and he was saying how good it is that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. He even said that he had become a Christian since he had left, uh, since after the war. And he, was, he, he knew that God had forgiven him, but he wanted to hear it from Corey as well. And she was looking at this man holding out his hand to her and she found that she couldn't forgive him. She just didn't have it in her. Her sister had died in that concentration camp and she felt nothing for him. But then she remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not of emotion. And she prayed a really powerful prayer in that moment. She said, Jesus, help me. I can lift up my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And when Corey put her hand in the man's, there was a jolt that started in her shoulder, worked down her arm and into their hands which were joined together. And it was like a flood of healing came over both of them. And she found herself saying, I do forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She realized in that moment it was not her love, but God's love for this man. You see, Jesus' forgiveness for this man had become her own. In one of the hardest moments in her life, Corey forgave this man like Jesus forgave his tormentors on the cross. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. It really wasn't about him, and it wasn't really about Corey for that matter. It was about the kingdom of God, God's kingdom of renewal and grace breaking through into our hurting and broken world. 
To be filled with the love of Christ, we must release the hate, unforgiveness, and regrets that are taking up love space. If you think forgiveness is impossible for you, remember Corey. Like Corey, we can all be filled with God's grace to do something that, from a human perspective, seems utterly impossible. We can all follow John Stott's last words and do the hard thing. I'm not asking you to forget. I'm not asking you to let somebody back into your life. I'm not asking you to put yourself or others at harm. What I am asking is for you to do the hard thing, but not alone. Jesus will guide you because we are forgiven to forgive like Jesus. So Father, forgive them. Why don't we pray those words together right now? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Thank you for, for taking on flesh. Thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for bearing our sins. Lord, we are sorry for the ways in which we drove in the nails, for the ways in which we've mocked and ridiculed you, for the ways in which we've turned from you and all like sheep have gone astray. Lord, forgive us, we pray. And we receive your forgiveness now. We thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us, that you have made a way where there is no way, where you have done the impossible. You've done the hard thing, Lord. And yet, Lord, in receiving that grace, in receiving that forgiveness, in receiving that gift, we realize, Lord, that there is a responsibility to respond in kind because we are forgiven to forgive like Jesus. So, Lord, help us to do the hard thing. Help us, Lord, to forgive and to receive that healing that we need, to receive that healing that transforms, that we may be a people who reflect your love and grace in a world that desperately needs it. And so thank you, Lord, and we pray this with gratitude and great expectation in Jesus' holy and awesome name.